a listener production. G'day, well done you for listening to the Howie Games Artist Series Episode 2, Part B, featuring actor Dan McPherson. Onwards. What was the first yes and how we delivered this news? And I like so, the smile on your face. <laughs> Looking back and thinking about it, I can see you back there now. So after the epiphany in Germany at the triathlon, in the med tent with the two steins after yep. the 22-kilometre DNF in the marathon, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I got back and I went, right, I can't. The last thing, I've quit riding bikes, I've quit triathlon. The last thing I'm going to quit is Dancing with the Stars because I can't keep doing that as a safety net. I've got to get rid of that. So I'm done. I'm going back and doing my last dancing. And, I, and so I quit, I quit dancing and I came home and I did my last season of dancing, which must have been 2014. And I'd had to do a couple of self-tapes from Australia during dancing back to... Um, back to the US and one of these was for a, a big sci-fi series shooting in New Zealand called the Shannara Chronicles. It was based on a, on a, um, a bunch of fantasy books and at, the mo- at that time it was for MTV and they were spending a stack of money on it and it was for the lead role in Shannara. And I knew that we'd had one of these network tests and we'd done the thing and they were showing the tape and I had the contract and the first job, the first phone call was at 9am the morning after my final Dancing with the Stars rap party Ooh. after seven seasons of Dancing with the Stars. Thankfully, I'd been to bed. I got to bed about 3 o'clock. I'd been up and um, at this point Zoe and I were out in, in Melbourne having breakfast and uh, I got a call from my agent and I went, really sorry, Dan, you didn't get the role, the lead role in Shannara. You didn't get it, and we're, we're apologies. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. The Shannara Chronicles begins Saturday, seven thirty on Sci-Fi. Like, oh, that's okay. But they'd like to offer you the role of the brother, and he's only in one season, and he's in eight episodes. Blah blah blah. And Zoe and I was on speakerphone, and Zoe and I looked at each other. Like, did Did you just tell? Wait, did you just say I've got a job? Well, yeah, but it's not the one you went for, but it's this one. Hang on, my first American... And so he delivered the news and he didn't realise how significant it was for me because he was telling me the bad news that I didn't get the lead in the show. But for me, I was like, I've got my first American job, you know? And, and so that was how I found out. And it ended up being an absolute blessing in disguise because I only had to do one season of that show and then I could go back to America and, and kept working ever since. Next on the Shinora Chronicles. What if it were not an attack, but an assassination? You shall both go. Father, the decision is made. There's no way we're going to make it out of there alive. And, and it was perfect. It was a perfect way to start. I got to work in New Zealand. We filmed it all around the North Island of New Zealand. I could come back and forth to Sydney as I needed to. And it was all, it was all great. And, you, and that's how it started, 2015. Put, what was his name? It was it Arian? Prince, Prince Arian. Prince Arian. He was a douchebag. He was a real, <laughs> he, was like, he was like the douchey prince, you know. Um, that was good fun though, mate. And a great, great cast, great people. And, and actually the lead, the lead actor in that was a guy called Austin Butler who's just, um, just playing Elvis for Baz Luhrmann's film. Right. And Austin was such a lovely cat um, that he was one of the reasons that uh, we named our boy Austin. There you um, go. Meant to be. There you We're go. talking about boys. You now get the question from my nine-year-old son. Yep. 
His name is Mac, but yep. he rolls as the big penguin. That's his name <laughs> of choice. Don't ask me why. Uh, he's quite fascinated by what you do for a job as well. We were looking at some clips of you this morning in uh, Wild Boys. Oh, yeah. And he's like, can he really ride a horse? But that's not what he asked you. So this is what you get. Hey, Dan, big penguin here. I got really nervous when I first met Adam Gilchrist. If you don't know who Adam Gilchrist is, he played cricket for Australia, he wicket-kept, and he batted. He was such an amazing cricket player. But what I want to know is when you met all the famous actors, did any of them ever make you nervous? That's a fantastic question, Big Penguin. Fantastic (laughs) question. Um, And... And look, yeah, probably, you know, and I think we are talking about before about nerves and, and about fear and and that comes out of expectation. Um, when I've met successful actors, directors, writers, whomever it may be, socially, well, there's, there's, there's not much, there's not much nerves because I've always just thought that the actual sincere conversation and... and interaction mm. is is fine and that's led to some some great friendships with people I didn't think I'd ever expect to be to be friends with but where I do get nervous is when there is an expectation to deliver and that is delivering on set and so the last show I did foundation um an actor called Jared Harris who's in Mad Men he was um yeah Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes he's the lead in foundation You can't save yourselves, but you can save your legacy. He's a real actor's actor. You know, he's he's, um, family history of incredible performers. And and he had a 12-page monologue on top of a volcano in the Canary Islands that we shot over 10 days. Of course he did. You know, of course he did. And I had two lines and I had to just get in there at the right spot, and they were quite confronting lines. I had to, I had to step out of the crowd and have a confronting kind of moment with with Jared, and I got really nervous because right. because there's expectation. I'm going, this guy's a great actor. I want him to think that I'm a good actor, um, and and yeah, and so I do. I, I do get nervous, but I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy, and how you manage that. Some people get crippled by, by nerves and crippled by fear, and I think artists particularly, more so than a- athletes, uh, are prone to that. And I think that's why artists have more issues with alcohol, drugs, um, mm. whatever the vices may be, to overcome the crippling self-doubt, um, which is existent in, in, I think, in a lot of us, in a lot of them and a lot of us. Um, well, mate, there's that, scene, there's that scene that DiCaprio does. Have you seen, is it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I might not have got the exact beautiful, right. Beautiful, beautiful scene. He's, he's there in the, in the caravan with a gun. In the trailer mate, and he's whacking inca- himself and he's... Total. Damn girl. You're going to show that goddamn Jim Stacy. You're going to show all of them on that goddamn set who Rick Dalton is. All right? Let me tell you something. Get your shit together. 
do you see that happen to people? Just because I would imagine, and this is the one of the sort of questions I want to ask you, when you walk out on a big production and you've described everyone has set the stage for you, like you're under the pump a bit if you yeah. if you're not getting it right. Yeah. Yeah, 100% you are. Um, and that's where the the two worlds that we've discussed today yeah. come together. I bet they do. That's where 20 years of triathlon of as an individual sport, of a mental discipline, of of self-belief, of, of backing <laughs> yourself, that's where I can take that learned skill and something that I discovered in myself when I was a little fat kid at 11, year old, 11 years old running around the block mm. and take that 25 years later to, to a, a set, you know, like couple hundred million dollar style massive set with massive creative forces in it. Jared Harris and David Goyer, who, who you know, writer, director extraordinaire and showrunner, um, and stand up in front of 300 extras and go, yeah, okay, back yourself, be the guy. And, and you know, there's a, there's a, so one of my favourite books is, it's called The Dude and the Zen Master. It's by... Um, What's it called? The Dude and the Zen Master. And right. it's Jeff yeah, Bridges like talking to his... Jeff Bridges and his Zen Buddhism teacher, a guy called uh, Bernie Glassman, I think is his name. And they're using the 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 dude from The Big Lebowski. Oh, one of the great films. To, dude. To, to, exactly. They're talking about the dude but in Zen Buddhism terms <laughs> and actually how the dude was pretty was pretty Zen. And, um, and one of the lessons in there is like... Just throw the ball, man. Like just, just throw the effing ball. And that is you can get so tight and so um, constricted by wanting an expectation that you can't even bring yourself to, to, to throw the ball. You know, he's talking about bowling. He's talking about 10-pin bowling. Yeah. So, well, I, I want to get a strike. I want it, This is the result I want is I, I want to knock 10 pins over or – I want to. I want to score four runs in cricket, or I, I want an expert. I want to score. I'm Kelly, Kelly Slatter. I want to score a perfect ten. But if you get so constricted by wanting that outcome, sometimes you can't even. You can't even hold the bat straight. You can't even get the right wave. You, and in this yeah. case, sometimes it's like forget about the expectation. Just throw the fucking ball, man, and see what happens. So what happens, mate, on the days where? you're not able to throw the ball as well as you'd like. Say you're on, on a big set, okay, and you've mentioned the dollars involved. Like when an actor stuffs up his lines or forgets them, or if it's you, like yeah. what happens? Do, do, do the crew look nervously away or does someone give you a little pump up or like, have you both. been in this situation yeah, before? Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally my, my own harshest critic. Yeah. So, okay. so... That's a double-edged sword as well. But, but a, a realisation came, in particular on a show like Strike Back, where it was so kind of make it up as you go along, or not make it up as you go along, but there were so many variables in terms of we're in third world or, or kind of really remote areas um, on, on, a very, on a restrictive budget and everything could go wrong. Tanks, guns, extras, pyros, explosions, Muds, I mean, everything. And you just had, but you had to shoot it that day. Get that son of a bitch, Mac. You have my word. Why don't you two just kiss and get it over with? And so you realised you had to trust 
all the other parts of the creative process. You had to trust the director. You had to trust the camera guy. You had to trust the editor. You had to trust the sound mixer to know that you might be there in your own head going, I'm crap, I'm crap, I'm crap. But it's every other person's job to make that show and by definition, make you look good. So, So even though you're the guy or the girl standing out there in that moment and you've got that two minutes to do your job, you're just an ingredient to the recipe that then has to go into another 10 phases of refinement before it pops out on your TV screen. So so it's a, it's a fine line between going, I need the utmost self-belief because I'm about to step out and perform as, my, as me in front of on this set and there's you know, X amount of eyeballs all around the world watching it. And also I am um, malleable and adaptable and generous enough to understand that I'm actually one part of the creative process and only one part. And, and that's, a, that's a delicate balance. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of actors, and particularly actors that have reputations for, for being painful, sometimes they can forget that or they don't trust that or maybe they don't trust the specific creatives that they're working with. But, but when you realise that no one's out there to make you look crap, then you can you can lean back into it and, and, and relax a bit more and, and have a bit more fun with it, I think. It's a great description that you're, you're part of the chain because, mm. you know, uh, the, as non-movie stars, we look at it as the movie star as the main person, but yeah. the way you've described it, there's so many people to get that person to be yeah. the movie star. Yeah. Before we get to strike back, because I really mm. want to talk to you about that, um, I've really enjoyed watching some of it over the last, over the last few days. I, I read or someone told me, I can't think of what it was, Maybe I read about it that with this epiphany with the triathlon that you were talking about and, and you went and put yourself into your craft, you needed to bulk up a bit, big boy. You're a skinny triathlete and you wanted to play these action man roles. Yeah. So you had to bulk it a bit. You had to yeah. get some beef on the frame. <laughs> I did, I so did. So how, how did you go? We go back into the sports side of it now. Yeah. So, so as well as preparing yourself mentally, you had to prepare yourself physically to play the type of roles you're after. Yeah. So or just you hit the protein shakes and the, yeah. the chicken and yeah. the rice yeah. and yeah. lots of weights? Yeah. What would you do? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much that. I mean, I was – I was trying to get lean and skinny and strong to be an endurance athlete. I was down at 72 kilos to race my last Ironman where I had that epiphany out there. So I How was tall are you? 5'9". Five 5'9", nine. Five nine. So okay. That's, that's pretty right. lean for me. Yeah, that is. Um, but I've always had quite, quite big shoulders and, and, and um, you know, grew up riding bikes and stuff. So I'm pretty, I, I don't know if I was, maybe I'm stocky. I don't know if I'm stocky, I don't know, but, but I was 70, 71, 72 kilos at Ironman race weight. Um, and by the time I started strike back, I, I wanted to be up at 80, 82. Ooh. And that's not a natural, that's not a natural spot for me. And, and that's where I've been sitting probably for the last five years. But, but, Thinking about even before I got strike back, around that time where I had that that sort of the the German epiphany, we'll say, yeah. um, <laughs> I I realised that for all my auditions, you know, if I'm going for an FBI agent, DEA agent, US, you know, army veteran, and the camera is is in a mid shot, so it's just you know, mid torso below your below your chest to your head, and so what they're seeing on camera is your chest, your shoulders, your arms, your traps, your neck, 
you know? And so I just really focused on that part. I was like, well, if I can build myself up to give the illusion that I'm bigger, I don't have to actually go and be, be, be mass bulk. So no leg days. But, How good? No leg days. Oh, mate, I'm 25 years, 25 <laughs> years of riding bikes, mate. I'm all dick and calves. Okay. And, um, so, okay. So, so, it's like, so it's real so, beach weight style material. No, I like totally. it. No, look, and then I, I did, <laughs> and then one thing I did was really just jump in with a nutritionist and I still work with him today um, and just realised that because of, uh, being the, the, the guy that I, I am, I couldn't train any harder. You know, and all, a lot of success, all my life, my success had come from training hard, training the hardest. I just burnt myself out. So I was like, well, how, what else do I do? How else can I refine this process so that I'm not exhausted, I'm not constantly tired, I'm not constantly sore, and I can still go and do my work because that's what I'm doing it for. And so I went and fixed my diet and learned about my diet, which is something I'd never done during triathlon and Ironman, and was able to train less but train smarter to get better results because I was eating very specifically. So that was and another. eating specifically, are we, are we talking specifically to put on weight or are we on some sort of fancy Hollywood sort of wheatgrass and, um, <laughs> you know, jojoba no, juice or something? No, no, it was just accountability, you know, and I think you can okay. you can talk about that in any any facet of life, but accountability works and, and you know, and yeah. I've always, whether it be acting coaches, whether it be sporting coaches, whether it be dialect coaches or nutritionists, I just want to go and find the best. Go and learn from the best. Who's the best nutritionist I can find? Cool. Teach me what you can do. Who's the best personal trainer, bodybuilder? Oh, you're a bodybuilder. Great. How do you tell me what you do? You know. Um, Got yeah. I mean, and this is all stuff that I learned from triathlon because you wanted to be the best swimmer, and then you wanted to be the best time trial cyclist, and then you wanted to learn how to run a marathon. And so you'd go to the best swim coach and then you'd go to a bike coach and then you'd go to a run coach and then you'd go to a triathlon coach. And, mm. and so I, I just, I love learning. I love knowledge and I love learning about myself and my potential and, and trying stuff and, and you know, genetics. I've, I've really sort of studied my own genetics in the last couple of years and, again, a, around fatherhood and seeing what, my father, my son has changed my relationship with my father and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm big on if you want to go and do something and learn something, go and learn from the best and study the best and go and work with the best if you can um, to get the best out of it. So for me, um, it was at that time it was about losing fat and putting on size. Um, more recently I was too big and I was uncomfortable and I'm, I mean, I'm 41 and I've got a sore back and love handles. So it's all right, well, I need to... You know, to drop five or ten kilos in the next two months to to, to get into, into shape, and and then and then the other thing, the other I was, the other thing that came out of Cronulla Triathlon Club, and I, you may remember Andrew Lloyd, who was a Commonwealth Games gold medalist yes. marathoner. Lloyd, he was another one of the faces down there. But but all this um, older generation of triathletes had the mantra of never be never get so unfit that you're more than six weeks away from a race. So okay. if, if your lifestyle is whatever, but you're not racing, you're not training, never be more than six weeks away. So it keeps you in this window. And I had this realisation when I got out of quarantine only two months ago after finishing in, in Spain and I'd had a month off and I was like, I'm, I feel crap, I look crap, I'm not enjoying, not, you know, not enjoying my training. Oh, I'm more than six weeks away. Yeah, so I just, just move the needle back to... To being closer, that if 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 uh, 
Marvel calls and says, oh, says, oh we need a re- replacement Superman, you know, that I'm, <laughs> I'm not on my 15th pint in the, in the pub somewhere <laughs> 20 kilos overweight, so, you know. Well, I, I hope you get that call. Mate, let's talk about Strike Back. i got some yeah. questions for you yeah. about Strike Back. So it's a uh, – give for those that haven't seen the show – it's action-packed. It's Give me 20 seconds, literally 20 seconds of what Strike Back is. Strike Back is a British uh, black ops soldier uh, and an American US Special Forces soldier pitted together uh, in a team uh, to go around the world doing off-book black ops to save the world. We got no comms, no exfil, one of the most dangerous places on earth. That was the plan, right? Yeah, that was the plan. And you are Sergeant Samuel White, yep. which we'll get to for a start. But you, you, when you watch this show, yep. Danny Boy, there's some serious gear going on here. So, how much do you have to learn about? jumping out of buildings or firing a gun or the, just the way to hold a gun or, or combat, like, is, do they get some guru in to teach you how to be, like, yeah, a, a was, badass? There was, yes, we had multiple gurus teaching us multiple areas of badassery. <laughs> right. um, this show is a very, a very stylized, big, uh, explosive. It's a good show. It's it's great, I really enjoy it's it. Great entertainment. It, um, it's it on, is it's on a great binge, entertainment. I think. If, if you're in Australia and want to watch it, um, it's on Binge. It was on HBO and Cinemax in America and on Sky in the UK. And yep. and um, it's a lot of fun. It's a wild ride. They pride themselves on their explosions. This would be an opportune time for you to apologise. But in the US and around the world, it's got a really big military and veteran uh, following because it's prided itself on always being the most authentic um, military action show when it comes to weapons handling, when it comes to tactics training, when it comes to, to whatnot. So, and so I was uh, the third generation of this show. It had two previous incarnations before with, with previous cast members. It went off air and they recast it and we came back in. So as soon as I got the job, which was November, and we were going to start shooting in April, uh, I had to go and learn how to be a, how to look like a US Special Forces Black Ops <laughs> operator. Now, I don't know about you, Howie, but I didn't grow up around guns. I'm a lover, <laughs> not a fighter. Um, Me too, and, and fast forward six months, I'm standing on a, on a weapons range in Amman, Jordan, firing live weapons, live rounds, not blanks, on a gun range where Russian... Uh, and German special forces were training alongside us on the next ranges down. Oh, the real deal, so not actors down there. The real deal, not actors. Right. So this is a $250 million special forces training centre that was built by the King of Jordan in Amman, and we've flown out there for four weeks to to train and be trained by the Jordanian special forces because the the King of Jordan was such a fan of the show previously. He was like, he was. come and train. Of course he was. Loved it. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many actors you'd trust with a live M4 
in their hands, and that was a big. So what's trouble. an M4? Uh, it's uh, it's an AR-15. It's the it's the machine gun that uh, the Americans are going right. crazy about, obviously, because it's responsible for the most mass shootings in the US. Um, it is a civilian version. So that is the military version of that civilian available okay. weapon. So um, you got your M4. Shooting five, five, six calibre rounds um, out of 30, 30, 30 round mags. Um, mate, you sound like John Rambo. Mate, I, I'll, learn, I'll, learn, I'll learn a little bit. I'll learn a little bit, Howie. Um, <laughs> so so we, we shot... We shot Every every conceivable rifle, um, and you had to learn how to do it, not only proficiently. You had to learn to do it in a style specific to a your nationality, your training, or your character's nationality, your character's training, your character's history, um, at a at a at a level of someone that's been in real combat for yeah. ten or fifteen yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And I had five months to do that, so. First thing I did was order a bunch of replica airsoft weapons that you can buy in America over online, and they arrive at your house next the next day, and they're basically all metal, but they shoot BB BB guns, basically, but full replica BB or gas powered airsoft guns. <laughs> because the first thing I needed to do was have guns around me the whole time, you know, and I needed to to know what it's like to have a pistol on your hip or a pistol down your pants or, or a pistol in your hand or be changing mags and while you watching TV or I have a I have a replica M4 rifle strapped around me and slung around me. I'd be in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> my wife would come home and go, what the hell are you doing? And there was once or twice where I had the blinds open and if the neighbours had a scene in, like I, like I had my weight vest on to try and get, I mean, I was just, I just had to familiarise yourself with this, this muscle memory, you know, and. So I went from from not having held a gun to to um, holding guns a lot and training a lot. So we trained with um, we had a, a, a British military advisor on set. We had the Jordanians who taught us for a month. Um, we then went up to Budapest. We were trained by Hungarian special forces and and Hungarian um, private military contractors while we we're in Budapest. Um, we had a yeah, I, I, we had all sorts. I trained I trained in everything and and. And ultimately, too, because I was the only American in that show, I was working a lot one-on-one with sort of Navy SEAL veterans and, and, and SEAL guys out of California to learn specifically what my guy would, would have learnt and what he would have learnt differently to, say, Mac, who was British SAS or, or anyone from Australia. So um, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about violence. I learned a lot, a lot, a lot, learned a lot about weapons. Um I came out a very different different human than I went in. Oh, I, I <laughs> bet. I bet. You'd be a good man to stash. I've got more questions for you on Strike Back, but yeah, now right. you get my daughter. She's 11. Her name is Sky. Yep. But she operates as the pickle. <laughs> so you've had the big penguin. Now you get, we love a nickname in our house. Now you get the uh, pickle, Danny boy. You ready? Yep. Hi, Dan. Pickle here. Well, I'm not sure what's cooler, that you're a triathlete or an actor. Anyway, Dad was showing me some clips from Strike Back. Wow, it's pretty action-packed. Do you have to do any of those stunts? Or do you have a stuntman do them for you? And if you do have to do them, do you ever get scared? This is a good question. This is a good question. Pickle, pickle, pickle. That's a great question. Um, so, yes, we have stuntmen and and we have a wonderful stunt team. Um, actually, a lot of them from New Zealand and, and a couple of Aussies. 
um, and a lot of Hungarians. My stunt double was a guy called Attila and he did three seasons with us and he was from Budapest. Um, but unfortunately in Strike Back, they spent a lot of their time sitting around doing not much because Strike Back is one of the few shows in the world where they want two lead guys in the mix doing as much as they can the whole time. So we were... The reason, part of the reason we shot in these really remote areas around the world was partly because of the tax incentives and partly because the laws would say that we were allowed to do stuff. So if we tried to do strike back in America, you couldn't use the same weapons, you couldn't use the same blank rounds, you couldn't use the same, you couldn't push the the boundaries. So So what type of places did you shoot it? You you talked about Jordan. um, We shot Jordan, Croatia, Budapest, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Croatia, back to Croatia a second time, um, and I think a couple of others in between there. But, yeah, all pretty, pretty wild, westy kind of places, mate. Okay, so tell me about a stunt. Tell me about a stunt you've had to do. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the first couple of weeks was driving. I had to... It was a car chase through the desert in Jordan. There's three cars, uh, Mac and Wyatt in the front of this Jeep. Sounds like fun. Uh, me climbing over the top of the open top Jeep, shooting the rifle back at the bad guys. That car explodes, flips over in the desert. Ah, two down, one to go. Jump back in. Another car swerves up next to us. I have to climb out again over onto the bonnet of the car of our Jeep, <laughs> then jump into the back of the car in front of us have a fist fight in the back of that car, knock the driver out. He he drops a grenade. I see that he's dropped a grenade. I throw him out of the car, jump back into my car, we veer off and that other car explodes. And we get away like Butch and Sundance. You asshole! What kind of person steals a car and doesn't check the gas first? So that was a case where Attila did a fair bit of that, I'll be honest. Right, right, you know, right, like, right. That right. was, that was uh, as he did a great job uh, because there's a little, even... Even in those early days, they were like, we're not, because we were the new kids at that point, we're not comfortable to, to, to see. If, I mean, if you jump from that one to the other and you go underneath the Jeep, you're done and we're back to square one and you, you never act again. In fact, you probably will never see you again. Um, <laughs> but we got very, um, very comfortable with explosions and we lost a few eyebrows and a few arm hairs over the, over the So how do you know? That was going to be yeah. one of my two questions there. Does someone say, do they count it down, five, four, three, the building's going to blow up? Or yeah, how, that, is how very, does it work? that is very strict. Yeah, so, so we have multiple rehearsals to work out timings, for, for explosions or for stunts or things like that. And if those stunts can't be separated out of the scene and done independently, like they would be in most productions, but but they weren't in Strike Back. They were always done in, in the action in Strike Back. That was part of it. They never wanted to cut out of it. They never wanted to, to, to stop the action for that. It was all seamless. And, you know, we'd have dialogue. We'd run into a building. We'd have dialogue. The camera would come out. And you'd have the, the FX guys there and we'd have certain marks on the floor to say, okay, this is a safe distance away. Okay. And, and, and also with the guns as well. We have very, very specific um, ways of firing weapons, even though we were flying, firing blanks. Oh. Oh, 
we knew we had we had been drilled in the safety aspect of these weapons, and and so you knew when to pull the trigger and when not, and and also that if you didn't pull the trigger, they could put that in post, and no one would be none the wiser. So there's no point in risking anybody's eyesight or anybody's hearing or anybody's face to to get an extra shot in, you know. Um, but yeah, the explosions. We'd rehearse them, you know. You're running out of a building. The building's going to blow up. When you step on this point is when we'll press press the button and the building goes up. Now, I'm sure that they said that to us, but I'm sure the director and the producer and the FX guy, hey, you know you know when they step on that point, just take it back like two metres. You know, and you come running out of there and you think, no, we're good, we're good. Bang. And you, I mean... No other job in the world would let us get as close to the action as that job. And and we're all slightly scarred from it, I'll be honest. <laughs> I love it. A couple more on uh, Strike Back. Mm-hmm. How do you punch someone in the face or get punched in the face and make it look real? Because you do a lot of that on the show where you're just yep. belting into blokes. Yep. <laughs> I was never, I've never been a fighter. I've never been taught how to punch. I've never done a boxing lesson. Um, so I just had to learn through, through the stunt department. Uh, whereas Warren Brown, my co-star, was a two-time amateur world champion Muay Thai fighter. Okay. I've never seen a punch thrown on screen better than Warren Brown. He is, he is a power, power, powerhouse, an angry little powerhouse. And I love him. Um, the key to punching on screen is understanding camera angles and and where you throw that punch on camera is dependent on which side or which angle you're being shot with the camera. Uh-huh. So if the camera is over your left shoulder to sell a punch, your right-hand punch is going to go from right to left across the across the lens and it's up to the person who is being punched, be that me or a stunt person or another actor, is for them to react accordingly to that punch. So you can. So is throw there the any best. contact? Is there any no, contact? No, no. So the right. safe, the sa- if there's contact, you've got to buy this by the other person the, a case of beer. That's the rule. So okay. I, I, I got one guy once, pretty good, um, and I had to buy him a bottle of scotch at the end of it. <laughs> I nearly broke his nose. Uh, it wasn't a punch, but it was a stunt, and I and I and I didn't realise I'd had it on his nose, and 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 I thought he was acting, and he wasn't acting. He was like, "Dad, Dad, stop! You're breaking my nose." I was like, "Sorry, sorry, 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 sorry." Um, and so I, I bought him a bottle of scotch to apologise. So no, there's always so there's stunt coordinators and safety coordinators on set, and so those punches are they should be a good couple of inches away from a face. Oh, okay. So you can throw the hardest punch in the world. But if the person receiving it doesn't react properly, it doesn't work. So there's a generosity in that to and fro between the responsibility of, of the puncher and the punchee um, to, to sell it together. And it's a dance between the camera and, and, um, and the actors. And also it's helped a lot by sound as well. Like so, so yeah. this is, we're in the business of illusion and creating illusion. And, and that can be done by camera angles, editing um, and, and sound as well. So, so no, a, good, a good couple of inches away is the rule. And sometimes when they get close, you can feel it. You know, oh, that was close. Um, nearly, nearly got a slab. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, as you get to know actors and stuntmen, and particularly the stunt guys and, and the guys that we worked with for three seasons, they're like, 
just kick me, mate. Just punch me. I can't. It doesn't hurt. It's fine. Like, <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't hurt? No, no. But but it um. But you get you get a little bit of contact with the guys you knew. Say if you're punching them in the stomach or, or whatnot. So then they can react in time as well. So it's um. It's all a dance. The Artist Series kicked off last week with singer-songwriter Paul Kelly. Thank you all so much for the tremendous amount of positive feedback on social media at MarkHoward03 about the pod's new direction. Paul was brilliant. He was simply brilliant. His descriptions of how his new song about AFL legend Eddie Betts came to pass were a showstopper. One of the regular footy shows that I watch. And uh, Eddie Betts was on there last year, I think about June June last year. Uh, Eddie got, you know, Eddie started talking and then he just, you could see that he was getting, it was a real, it was painful for him to talk about. And, he, and you could see he was very emotional and he's, he's quite pained, but he was, I, I just thought his courage was immense that he was talking about it. You know, I knew it wasn't the first time. This everyday racism that he experiences and, you know, he gets it on the field and he's getting it online. And he, he said in that interview at least three times, if I recall, he said, I'm sick and tired. Uh, you know, I want to keep educating people, but it's 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 really hard. I'm sick and tired of it. And um, that's, so that was the start of the song. I, I want to make the point that I don't decide to write a song. I don't decide to sit down and say, I'm going to write a song about Eddie Betts. I, I saw that show tonight and I'm going to write a song about Eddie Betts. It doesn't happen like that. It's more like... Um, you, you start hearing a voice uh, and then the voice won't let you go. So you've got to just honour that voice and follow it. And then so I followed the voice and wrote the song. And, of course, the song's in the first person. So it's it's in Eddie's voice or, you know, my imagination of Eddie's voice. So this is what, you know, fiction, fiction writers do. And I'm a songwriter. I write fiction. Um, so I had this imagined voice of Eddie. And I thought, oh, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. I just sat with it for a while. And then um, then I thought, uh, maybe I'll just contact Eddie about this song, send it to him, see what he thinks and and see what he thinks about releasing it. I, I'm very conscious of, uh, I don't want to tell other people's stories. Uh, when it's, yeah, when you're telling true stories about people, you, you, uh, I just thought I should check check with Eddie, see what he thinks about it um, and whether, you know, he'll, he would mind if we release it at some stage. And, you know, I tracked down his phone number. And and as you'd expect, he, I got a beautiful, gracious, generous response and he said he really liked the song and he, he was honoured. And he, and he said, oh, I want to play it in the car with my kids when I go and play my last game. Wow. Uh, so... I thought, well, that's, you know, that's a, that's a big compliment from Eddie. So we've just been in touch about the song coming out and I wanted it to come out with his blessing. Uh, he's given it, so off we go. That's Paul Kelly on episode one of the Howie Games Artist Series. Let's get back to Dan. Accents. So it, accents, as uh, yep. Sergeant Samuel White, you've got yep. a nice American accent. Yep. Did I just die? Yeah, I did stop breathing for a bit. Oh, wow. How many different accents can you do? You just got your Australian and American, or have you got a couple others you can throw uh, Yeah. I mean, it, you kind of fit the voice, fit the voice to the character. So when when Wyatt first came up, um, Wyatt was supposed to be so, uh, Southern, 
and yep. and had a real southern kind of of lilt and um and then they changed it to more standard American, which I thought was kind of less interesting. Um, um, and, and it was quite hard on that because it was um, I was the only the only person doing an American accent on that on that set, so it was pretty predominantly English crew filming in Croatia, Budapest, you know, Malaysia, and 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 actually Malaysia was and Southeast Asia was the easiest place. To, for me to do the accent because oftentimes they spoke English with, with a slight American uh, t- lilt. Yeah. Um, but when, so it's just something I had to learn and, and, and I still have to work very hard at it. And the longer I'm back in Australia, the harder it is to, to do a good American accent. Whereas I'm living in America, um, it, it becomes second nature because you end up talking in it, whether you're ordering a coffee or ordering food or, Whoever you're talking to, you just got to because otherwise they don't understand what you're saying. If you talk in an Australian accent, hey mate, can I get two? Can I get two tall lattes and a and a caramel macchiato? I'm sorry, sir. What? What? <laughs> you know? And so, you know, you just have to you have to you have to sit in it. But it's harder. They don't, they don't naturally go together. And I and I feel very Australian at the moment. No, but I liked <laughs> yeah. your American one. I think it's time. For you to uh, play your role and me to play the role of Mac, but I'll need some tips as we go, or you can analyse it afterwards. Okay. So I've got it written in front of me. So uh, oh. you sent me three I'm pages. I'm going to pull it up here. Yep. Hang yeah, on a you second. You get it up. It's uh, yeah. Int slash X. So I presume that means interior, exterior, hearse, road, Ukraine day. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it says here it's an audacious escape from Russian ex-military <laughs> man Milos. Borosovich with Wyatt, that's you driving a borrowed car. Yeah. Mac is me, has jumped into the passenger seat, yeah? Now, this this was my audition scene. This was actually, this scene was written to, for purely for the audition, audition by Jack Lothian, who was our showrunner and writer. And the scene ended up being um, so good uh, and so enjoyable between Warren and I that it got us both the job. Right. Uh, and then uh, they ended up writing it into a scene. So... You might just have to give me a second here because no, no. one thing I you, forgot you, to do you, you was find get it up. It. it was on the email you sent me, so it'll be on there yeah. if you need to go back there. Um, so it's an audacious escape. Uh, Milos Borosovic, whose name I've got to say so I've got to make sure I get that right. Okay. Um, I'm starting to feel a bit edgy about this now. This was a good idea when I was thinking it through, but now I'm not quite so sure. <laughs> Mate, little, uh, little pickle asked if I got nervous. Yeah. Man, I, get ner- I get nervous all the time. Like, you know, okay. I'm nervous on my own script. So I'm going to do this just in my natural accent to start because I haven't read it for a while and then I'll, I'll maybe if we end up doing it once or twice. Okay. I might go back to Any tips for me? Uh, pace, pace and energy is good in this. If it gets too slow, you kind of lose it, but don't rush it. But a good little bit of energy to make this scene sing nicely. Okay, so just to set the scene again, this is an audacious escape from Russian ex-military man Milos Borosovich with you driving a borrowed car and me, Mac, has jumped yeah. into the passenger seat. Yes. So just to give you a little bit. Yes. We've got the big, big escape. Mac's gone to me. Go, White, go get us some wheels. We've got to get out of here. Okay, cool. I'll meet you out the front. Bang. He's shooting, shooting, shooting. Bang. Runs out the front, jumps in the car and action. Action. What the hell is this? You told me to grab some wheels. This is a hearse. Well, yeah, I guess so. I just went for the first thing I could. 
So you stole a hearse. Uh, to be fair, you didn't specify what kind of car. Oh, I didn't think I had to. You said to me, and I quote, steal the first vehicle you see. So if you want to throw me some bad looks, throw in the mirror. So I'm taking a look around the hearse now. This is my method acting. <laughs> I, t- I spell for a beat. Lovely. Wyatt, there's a coffin in the back. Well, yeah, it makes sense. It's a hearse. And it's probably empty. So I lean back now. I'm peering into the coffin. It's not. Jesus, you just stole the body of Borosovich's dead mother. No, 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 I didn't. I stole the hearse. I didn't know his mother was in the back. What did you fucking think was in the back? She's dead. It's not like she cares. Well, you think I'm worried about her? What do you think Borosovich is going to do when he finds <laughs> out what we've done? You know what, Mac? That's his issue. He's got to learn to let go. All right, there is no mercy in things. There is no great beyond, there's no heaven, there's no nothing. Oh, sure, let's stop the car and you can discuss the nature of existence with the butcher of Lachensky. Hey, you wanted a getaway vehicle. We're getting away. Contact. <sighs> Shit, how many? Two cars. Hang on, motorbike as well, counting four. No, they're gaining. We're too heavy. No. Look, I don't like it and you don't like it, but we could sit here and we could discuss the moral implications of this, but right now we're too heavy and we've got to lose weight and we've got to do it now. Thank you. Just when I thought things couldn't get any worse. Go on, get back there. How'd we go? How'd (laughs) we go? Well done. I quite liked it. I quite enjoyed this acting caper. (laughs) Mate, you're going to have to put up a link to this scene, the oh, real this scene, with so, the show notes, now, mate. <laughs> now, to be honest, you can be as brutal as you want. What did you think for my first attempt? I thought that was a fantastic first rehearsal. There's great natural energy in there. And um, and now let's let's go back. We're going to do a couple of adjustments and you're okay. great at them. Okay. Right. So there's three, there's three parts to this scene. Yep. First part is... Getting in up into that first beat. Yep. Uh, before the line, Wyatt, there's a coffin in the back. So we're talking about uh, the energy of that is about the, the extraction of that, um, of getting out away from that. Okay. The realization that you've stolen a crap getaway vehicle. And I think you're, you're a bit of a dick. And also that these guys have got tension between each other. Second part of the scene, there's a change. So it's like they're taking in the hearse. Okay, we might be able to do it. Then to change as you did, and that beat was very nice. Okay. Well, hang on a second. There's a coffin in the back. Well, yeah, of course, the coffin in the back. So, so that sort of second part of that, and we did when when we did that on the day, and then you and I did as well, and Warren and I did it again. That tension begins to rise. So the the pace picks up, and the intensity picks up, and and then finally that ends at the next beat, beat of quiet, Mac fume, Wyatt deflects, and he breaks the silence into contact, bang, we're back in work mode. And so these two guys, and the joy of this this show was you'd see these guys who are very good at their job in a work sense, you'd see them in a personal life as well, in their personal interaction, and you're a dick and you're a dick and whatever, and then, oh, someone's got a gun, bang, okay, we're back on to be professionals. So Uh, I have one further question before we have another go. I was a bit unsure about my ability to swear. I, 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 I don't know if I did that very well. I wasn't sure if I should stress the F or the back. I didn't know if I should just sort of work over it. I didn't know well, want to upset the audience of the podcast. No, 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 no. Apologies for that. Look, it's not our script, guys, if you're listening. We wouldn't ever say these words. But, no, but, but this know, is what's written and we're professionals. Um, I, so 
the, I think one of the biggest traps that that I still fall into and everyone does is is to emphasize to hit put when you see a, a swear word in a script yes. is to emphasize that. But but if we're talking in real life, that guy's an idiot. What do you mean a guy's an idiot? The guy's a fucking idiot. Right. Gotcha. Like it's a so so I think maybe in real life. Sometimes we emphasise the F words and sometimes we use the the F word to emphasise the point. So <laughs> that's going to be a character choice for you, mate. Right. I'm, you know, I feel a bit yeah, it's more, up to you. I feel a bit more in the, in the zen moment now. Right. You might need to bring your accent to the table to give me a bit more okay. flow. All right, all right. Let's see what we can do. Okay. Take two. What the hell is this? You're talking to grouse on wheels. This is a hearse. Well, yeah, I guess so. I went for the first one I could. You stole a hearse. No, to be fair, you didn't specify what kind of car. Well, I didn't think I had to. You said, and I'm quoting here, steal the first vehicles you see. So if you want to throw shade, Mac, you throw in the mirror. What? There's a coffin in the back. Well, yeah, it makes sense. It's a hearse. Come on, it's probably empty. It's not. Jesus, you stole the body of Borosovich's dead mother. No, 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 no. I stole the hearse. I didn't know his mother was in it. What the fuck did you think was in the back? She's dead, Mac. It's not like she cares. Well, I'm not worried about her. What do you think Borosovich is going to do when he finds out what we've done? Well, you know what? You know what, Mac? That's kind of his issue. He's got to learn to let go. There's no mercy in things. There's no great beyond. There's nothing out there. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's stop the car and you can discuss the nature of existence with the butcher of Blachinsky. Hey, you wanted a getaway vehicle. We're getting away, right? Contact. Oh, shit, how many? Two cars. Hang on, there's motorbikes as well. There's four. Yeah, they're gaining. We're too heavy. No, 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 no. no look, no. I don't like it. You don't like it either. We could sit here and we could discuss the moral implications of this, but right now we're too heavy and we got to lose weight and we got to do it now, Mac. Thanks. Just when I thought things couldn't get any worse. <laughs> hey, I think that one had a bit more zing. I think that one had a bit more flow. There we go. You feel the shade and the light and the shade in that. Hey, mate. I like that. You got the job. I like that. You got the job. Do you think <laughs> in the five-step process of mm. the audition that you laid out, yeah. do you think I'll get to step two? Yes, I have okay. no doubt, mate. There's definitely okay. there's definitely a rough diamond quality there, mate. That could be okay. <laughs> and so if we get to if we get to four and we're mm. talking a season as a as a young actor making my way, mm. what and you said we've got to put a dollar figure on it, what am I sort of asking for per day? Well, you'd be uh, you'd be looking at an episodic figure uh, right. per episode if you wanted okay. to to go it that way, mate. Um all I could say is if you wanna if you wanna put a number figure on it, I do. you need to double it to whatever you want, you need to double it and add a bit because <laughs> the agents commission, the US tax, Australian tax, whatever else, um, it comes uh, it comes home a lot less than you think it is. I'll tell you okay. that. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. I'm thinking I'm thinking five K US and Ep. Um Good. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, I, Hang um, on. Have I, have, I, have I priced myself out of the market? <laughs> uh, look, look you, you're definitely at the lower end of, of the spectrum there, mate, which, oh, is, good. Uh, which would be lovely. So you'd be a cheap buy. You'd, le- you'd free up plenty of space in the budget, right. put it that way. So, there's lots of, so I need to up it a bit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I'd, I'd be asking, I'd be I'd, 10 times that, mate. I'd ask a bit more. 
Oh, 50 in it. Righto. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll continue to work on my craft. I yeah. might send you a few yeah. more tapes through and, and you mate, can help me through that. You, hey, you it, need some notes, mate. Don't worry. What is... What is and thank you for doing that. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> is there is there a, like that strike back looks to me like a tremendous amount of fun. Is there mm. a role out there? Like, what's the ultimate for you? Is it a size of a production? Is it a certain role? Is it a certain genre? If I said to you now, I'm the king of Hollywood. Of all the projects coming up, or all the movies that have been out in the last few years or shows, you can take your pick. Mm. What's the one you want to do? That's a great question, and, I, and that it kind of evolves as you as you live and grow and and, and evolve as a human. And, and you know, I'm 41 now, and I keep mentioning sort of how important fatherhood has, has been to me. Mm. Um, and the roles that I probably would have answered that question in my 20s are different to the roles in my 30s, and, and now in my early 40s. Um, there's different sort of versions of stories that I want to tell and, and different life experiences that I believe that I can bring to, to characters and things like that. Um, so often where there's things, where there's stuff like um, where you've got deep character studies and particularly, you know, you can only really act what you know. So for me, that's it's, it's um, looking at masculinity and masculine roles and, and but in high-pressure um, situations where an audience goes, shit, I wonder how I'd react to that. So if you look at films, I've always been um, attracted to sort of Second World War-style things. Like I love yeah. Saving Private Ryan. I love Fury, um, which David Ayer did with um, with Brad Pitt and those guys in that tank um, in the same way that I loved the way something like Collateral with Tom Cruise was a character study of Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise set against a, mm. a, an action kind of background. So I still can't get away from the fact that I love the, the physical side of, of, of acting and the roles I get to play, but really digging down into, into some of those deeper sort of emotional issues in the way that something like um, Hugh Jackman got to do in the last Logan film. You know, oh, which yes. is a, a, a character study of the decline of a man past his peak um, and breaking down while still trying to force himself to care for someone older and someone younger. And, and th- those kind of thematics are, are, are not, um, not dissimilar to where I'm at in my life. And so you, you go, well, I'd be interested to explore that on screen, um, you know, by the same token. And I, I, I think that's kind of... That's what excites me and that's what challenges me. But by the same token, you can go and go do a cowboy film and it's just about riding horses and hanging out with your mates. But actually I much prefer it if it's a, if it's a thematic study of how cowboys were for, forced to survive and how the Indigenous American Native Indians or whatever the country and how they had to work together and, and how they were... Um, whether there was oppression or whether there was who was who was in, involved, like something like, you know, you go back to something like Dances with Wolves, beautiful study of of integration in a time that was full of destruction and oppression, and and I think as you get older, you want to tell stories with meaning. You want to tell stories that have relevance and resonance, and and that's getting more and more important to me. Gee, it's a tremendous, that, that answer just shows the learning and the effort and the work you've put in since you were 
John Samuels on on Neighbours. No, but yeah. it, it does, mate. They're like it's a twenty odd mm. year study, and it's a, yeah. poured. I can see from that answer how much you poured into it. So you deserve mm. every success that comes oh, your way. So, you. so, so, you, so you get this part, and you can choose a, a, an actor, or an actress to work with. Anyone on the planet that's currently in your business now, um, who would you love to stand beside and and work on a film with? Oh wow. Um... I, the people I, I really admire are the people that really kind of dig in and, and go there and, and always deliver in those performances. Um, I think Michael Fassbender is is astounding. Um, mm. There's a generation of actors, Daniel Kaluuya, um, John Boyega, David uh, O'Yellow, well, uh, all out of the UK who are astounding um, in terms of females I love um, Jessica Chastain. I love Rachel McAdams. I love Alicia Vikander hmm. that are always and of a similar generation to me. So I'm picking this generation because, you know, if we're ever going to get cast as husband and wife, let's say, and that's a long shot. But, but you know, they, they have an approach to their work that I just find astounding and I, and I love and, and it's an approach to their craft that, that I would like to. And coming out of this country, I... I look up to Joel Edgerton. I think he's fantastic the way he's transformed himself as an actor throughout the course of his career, actor, director, producer. Um, and if I could end up with a career that was, you know, 25% of what Joel's done, I'd be very, very happy. But but I think it it just comes down at this point where you go, I've got a finite amount of time um, to do this job um, and, and certainly coming into the sweet spot of of an acting career in, in, say, 40 through to 50 or, or whatnot, you know, the sweet spot for leading men in, in that, in a, in a traditional sense is is sort of headed my way. Um, but you, you want to work with people you admire and, and have, I assume and I hope, similar um, commitment to the material. I only have two more questions for you. One is a serious but a lighthearted question. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it's more serious, I guess. Fame, you, you, you know, you spend time in Hollywood and all of our thoughts mm. of Hollywood. Uh, well, it was 18 months ago now. Mm. I was lucky enough to take my wife and two kids. We were going down to Panama and Costa Rica on a bit of a surf trip, but yep. always uh, we've done it a couple of times. We stopped in LA mm-hmm. on the way and take the kids to Disneyland or to Flags and we uh, we stayed in West Hollywood and, I just remember having lunch and just seeing the cars go down Rodeo and the the people and the jeans and the sunglasses and, and the look, you know, the Hollywood look. How have you dealt with, like you're just a dude, man, that was in triathlons and then was in Neighbours mm. and now you're immersed in this Hollywood world. How have you dealt with fame and that real but yet unreal world in which you go to work in? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. You know, and I've I've had to I've had to check myself a couple of times when I was driving around Cronulla with my aviators on and my big black four wheel drive, going, "Hey, dude, have you 
have you crossed over the line a bit too far yet or what? <laughs> you know, like, because it, it's like the frog in boiling water thing, isn't it? Yeah. Where it's like you yeah. turn the heat up a little bit, you don't even realise that 10 years yeah. down the track, you're a complete wanker. You, know? <laughs> you don't know how big a wanker you've actually become. <laughs> exactly. Until you come home and go into lockdown and go, am I? Am I? Oh, maybe I am. Um, mate, to, for me... Well, you know, we might touch on this again, but but one of the first bits of advice I got was never believe your own publicity and it served me well 25 years later. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. Um, but secondly, for me, I've never sought fame. Fame has never been something I, I've, I've sought to do. I'm very private. I'm very protective of my family. I'm very protective of um, my authentic life and authentic self. And there's things that I do and don't do that is no one's business. And I don't particularly want anyone to see. Mm. Um, and I don't care if they do or they don't, but it's like, well, that's mine. It's mine. Um, but the rule I've always sort of stuck to is, is fame is a byproduct of being very good at something you choose to do. Famous cricketer is because you're a great cricketer. Sachin Tendulkar isn't famous in India just because he's plays cricket. It's because he's very, 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 very good yes. at what he does. Um, you know, y- your boy loves Adam Gilchrist because he was very, 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 very good at what he did at a, an elite level for a long time and then was able to use that fame to, to show that actually he was a great human being with a great personality and and so fame works for him, you know, in, in that sense. But if you go looking for fame without the base of being good at your craft or good at your vocation or good at your sport, they're the people that I've met over the years that are... They're, they're the dicks. Yeah. They're the people that are trying to replicate what it's like to be Adam Gilchrist or be Sachin Tendulkar or be Matt Damon or be whomever it may be, they're the ones that you're probably seeing in LA with the big glasses and the cars yeah. trying to live the life because they've, they haven't quite nailed the base level of it, which is succeeding at your craft, vocation, sport, whatever, and that fame is then a byproduct of it. And people say, you, know, you talk about meeting famous people or being nervous around famous people. The most famous people I've always met have always been the nicest, humblest, coolest, open, most relaxed and chilled because they've got nothing to prove. Mm. It's always that second or third tier that are trying to prove something, trying to be, trying want, want people to see them as though they are in the top tier. And that's where those egos come in and that's where that, that – and I think, you know, over the course of 25 years of doing it, you realise that's just, you know, people with their own insecurities. It's people with their own shit, insecure who they are and where they are. And I've gone through, through phases of that for sure. Um, and I think, I think most people do. But, but as long as, for me, fame remains purely a byproduct and not a goal, then we're cool. It's a fantastic answer, a byproduct, not a goal. It's a fantastic answer. Uh, just before I ask you the final question, um, I, I don't know what you can and can't say. What will we see you in next? Coming up this year um, is a sci-fi series for Apple TV+. Plus. It's called Foundation. Uh, there's a teaser trailer online at the moment. 
You're familiar with my work, psychohistory? Every mathematician has read your theory. It's not a theory. It's the future of mankind expressed in numbers. And the Empire won't like the future I predict. Looks good. Which I don't feature in, which I'm bitterly disappointed in, but I um but I don't turn up to a little bit later in the series. But but it's based on the um on the novels by Isaac Asimov, uh, one of the most uh, seminal and renowned mm. sci-fi authors of, of, of all time. And so I started shooting that um, before COVID. So I started shooting that in January 2020 in Ireland. Um, we had a six-month six hiatus um, throughout the pandemic and then I returned to Ireland in September last year, shot there f- before Christmas and then I went back to Spain and the Canary Islands um, early this year to finish that. And that's 10 episodes and it's a huge mega sci-fi event for Apple that will be launching um, on the 24th of September this year, which is very exciting. So hopefully if that, if that goes again, um, I'd love to go back and do more of that. And at the moment I am just hustling uh, on auditions and I've been in the fortunate position to be able to turn some jobs down, which is something I never thought I'd really be doing in my career at this point, but but wanting to stay home for a little while, spend more time with my, my family and obviously be here with my son as much as I can, that that, um, that the priority, prioritisation of work and the criteria that work has to meet now is raised because my time is so much more valuable, I guess. Um, and... And I'm just there's a lot of there's a lot of jobs floating at the moment, and I'm enjoying a bit of downtime, having not stopped for for five or six years now. It's been a real big run, um, and and I know that when it starts again, which could be as early as next week or as late as January, um, that I think we'll be off on a, on another little crazy merry-go-round for a couple of years. So um, it's a, it's an interesting time, mate. I'm really enjoying it. It, it doesn't really. It's not really in my nature to take time out and take a deep breath and pause, but I, I really did need a, a proper recharge and a, and a proper reset for a little while. And it's nice to be to be on the ground here with family and um, and just taking my time with things. You mentioned family a couple of times there. So if I'd asked you this question three years ago before you were a father, you'd just answer it. But now it will have so much more meaning to you. I always finish the show with this question and as a parent it holds so much more weight for all the youngsters out there, Mm. Dan, that are hoping to achieve success in Mm -hmm. their field like you have achieved tremendous success in your field. Mm -hmm. What advice would you leave them with for those that want to chase their dreams as you have and as you have met, as we've heard in the last couple of hours? Um, It's a weighty one, isn't it? It's a weighty one. I love it and there's so many bits and pieces that I've – I've um, that I've picked up and used and discarded and, and that have served me well over the years. But um, sort of the key takeaways: learn as much as you can, learn as much, read as much, study as much, watch the greats, watch the ones, work out who you admire, and study them. Work out what they did, how they got there, why they do what they've done, every bit of information is available at your fingertips in this day and age. Learn as much as you can. Um, You want to be an actor, go and find your favourite actor. Go and find the the best actors in the world and study them, what what they did. Um, I've gone through and watched every single Denzel Washington film, every single Russell Crowe film in chronological order throughout their career to study what they did, how they changed, how they grew. Um, Be that sports, be that entertainment, 
um, be open to, to continual learning and have the humility to realize that you need to learn more and you will always need to learn more. And when you think you've got there, there's still more to learn. Um, secondly, uh, back yourself. Back yourself, back yourself, back yourself. People will tell you you can, you can't. They might care, they might not care. But when you're faced with that moment, when you're faced with stepping out onto the cricket pitch for the first time into the crease, when you're stepping on set for the first time, just take a deep breath, listen to that little voice in your head and just remind yourself, I got this. I got this. Back yourself. I love it, mate. I, uh, I, as I said right at the start, I've been so tremendously looking forward to this, but your explanation of your world and what's required to succeed in your world and the things you have to do in your world, whether it's learning lines or shooting machine guns or just genuinely putting yourself out there and preparing yourself to deliver time and time again. I've loved mm. every moment of this conversation with you, mate. It's been everything I hoped it would be. I wish you so much luck moving forward oh, with your family, mate. with your career. I hope the, the role that you aspire to comes your way because I've no doubt from what you've described that you'll prepare and you'll work and you'll nail it. And it's been a treat to have a chat with you, mate. I've I've loved every moment of it. It just sounds like a bloody fun job that you have, to be honest. I oh, appreciate it, mate. I'm, I'm honoured that I would, like I said, I would honoured that you'd uh, be interested enough in, in what I do to want to have a chat, mate. So it's been an absolute joy. I appreciate it very much. Stay safe, mate. Go well. Cheers, pal. You too. I hope now you also have an actor to cheer for like I do with Dan. What a legend a fellow that just has a genuine crack. Thanks to Dan for coming on and showing some faith in the artist series when it was barely more than an idea in my head. Thanks to Kelly Black and Joanna White from Black and White PR who have been tremendous in helping to launch the artist series. If you ever need PR, Kelly and Joe are elite. Old mate Grant Tothill, the guru from Listener, has also been integral in getting this whole shebang to air. And most of all, thanks to you all for listening. Until next Tuesday with Kevin Parker from Tame Impala, global superstar. Peace and love. Listener.